Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Professor Chad L. Williams, the author of The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois, and The First World War. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Professor Williams, I wonder if you could um, start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Well, I'm a professor of African-American studies uh, and history at Brandeis University. Uh, my first book, uh, Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era, uh, examined uh, the history of African-Americans uh, during the war and their struggles for democracy and citizenship. And this book really came out of that project and actually going back to my doctoral dissertation, which would become Torchbearers of Democracy. I was doing research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I saw a curious reference to Du Bois World War I materials. And I quite honestly didn't know what to expect. I thought it might be interesting to look at this collection. So I go to the library. I ask the librarian to see this collection. And she returns with six microfilm reels. So I'm really interested (laughs) in what is on these microfilm reels. I load the first reel and I discover this manuscript, this 800-page manuscript by W.E.B. Du Bois on the Black experience in World War I that he never finished and was ultimately never published. In addition to that, all of Du Bois's research materials and correspondence related to this project that he devoted 20 years to working on. So from that moment, I was hooked. I was obsessed with learning more about this book, learning more about why it was never completed, but ultimately what it could potentially tell us about W.B. Du Bois himself, his life, his work, Um, and his political and intellectual evolution as it relates to the broader struggles for freedom and democracy for Black people in the 20th century. Chapter 1. You started by telling us something about his family, August 1914. Tell us more. Du Bois, really from the start of the war, had a very close, intimate, personal connection to the conflict. His daughter and his wife were traveling to Europe uh, during the initial month of the war in August of 1914. His daughter was going to boarding school. His wife was going to accompany her. So he was concerned about their safety, uh, concerned about how the war would affect them. Uh, Ultimately, they do travel uh, to Europe uh, and spend uh, the first year of the war um, overseas. But this was really the beginning of Du Bois's very close connection to the war and ultimately how he would wrestle 
with its significance, both on a personal intellectual level, as well as on a deeper political level as well. Now, tell us about Du Bois' education, the region of the country in which he was born, and something about his mother. How did that, you know, push him into being who he was? Du Bois lived a truly remarkable life, 95 years. Uh, and he was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868, uh, during the Reconstruction years, during the years uh, when Andrew Johnson uh, was president of the United States. Uh, and he grew up uh, in a very small New England community, uh, which did have a very uh, vibrant, uh, a very small, but still nevertheless vibrant black community. Um, and his mother uh, was part of that black community, which went back several generations. Um, and he was very close to his mother. His father uh, left the family uh, at a very young age. Uh, and he felt that it was his responsibility to certainly take care of his mother. Um, and after she died uh, very prematurely, uh, to fulfill the promises that he made to her to receive uh, the best education possible um, and to represent his race as best as he could. Now, he had many different um, jobs within the academic world. Tell us something about his uh, academic life. Du Bois was truly singular in terms of his uh, education, in terms of his pedigree. Uh, he received his first undergraduate degree from Fisk University. Uh, it was his first time traveling to the South, uh, where he really began to see himself as African-American, as part of a proud race of people. Uh, but he always desired, uh, as most New England boys did, to receive a Harvard education. So he was admitted to Harvard to pursue a second undergraduate degree. Um, and then from there, he continued into graduate school at Harvard, uh, where he would ultimately become the first African-American to receive a PhD from Harvard University. During this time, he also studied for two years at the University of Berlin, which was considered to be the pinnacle of higher education uh, in the late 19th century. So his educational background was really unparalleled in terms of African-Americans and peoples of African descent more broadly uh, in the late 19th century, at a time when the vast majority of African-Americans were being relegated to second-class citizenship and did not have uh, educational opportunities. The death of Dr. Du Bois' son. Tell us about that and how that impacted the family. And very tragically, uh, Du Bois' firstborn son, Burkhardt, died uh, less than two years old uh, when the family was living in Atlanta. Uh, du Bois uh, first taught at Wilberforce um, and then took a position at Atlanta University where he really established himself as the leading scholar and intellectual um, of uh, African-American studies um, at the time. And the death of his son was deeply impactful uh, for Du Bois, um, especially for his wife, uh, who really never recovered from the trauma. But that really symbolized uh, for Du Bois the challenges of being black in America, that even despite his educational background, despite all of his success, he was still vulnerable to the pain, the suffering, the death 
that was so endemic to Black people in the late uh, 19th century, and especially in the South. Now, let's move to the war. What was Du Bois' warning to the Black population about the importance of the war? Really, from the start of the war, Du Bois implored African Americans to realize the significance of the war, not just to their lives, but to the lives and futures of peoples of African descent more broadly. He was incredibly clairvoyant, uh, incredibly prescient in identifying the root causes of the war and the colonial exploitation of African peoples, how the desire for colonies amongst the European belligerents for the human and material resources in Africa fueled the rivalries and conflicts which ultimately led to the war. Um, and he believed that it was important for African Americans to realize what was going on and to understand that the destinies of peoples of African descent were also tied to their destinies as well. When Booker T. Washington died in 1915, how did Du Bois move into the spotlight? Booker T. Washington was considered to be the spokesman of the race. Uh, he was the powerful principal of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Uh, he wielded incredible influence uh, and power. Uh, he had a very uh, volatile relationship with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, and their rivalry really uh, reflected uh, the debates about which course of action was most appropriate for African Americans, uh, particularly uh, by the turn of the century. Uh, when Booker T. Washington dies in 1915, it leaves a tremendous void uh, in terms of African American leadership, which Du Bois readily fills. So by the time um, of uh, the war in 1914, and certainly by 1915, when Booker T. Washington dies, Du Bois has firmly established himself as the leading spokesperson of the race. Now, you talk about, in, in Chapter 1, Du Bois meeting Adam Patterson. Tell us about that connection. Adam Patterson is really a fascinating figure. Um, he was someone who uh, believed that it was possible to succeed uh, regardless of race uh, in America at a time when African Americans were being relegated to second-class citizens and uh, essentially removed from the political establishment. Uh, he makes a very controversial decision uh, to align himself with the Democratic Party uh, and with the administration of Woodrow Wilson, and he's heavily criticized for this, uh, criticized by many African Americans in the press, including W.E.B. Du Bois. They reunite, uh, interestingly enough, during the war when Adam Patterson receives a commission uh, to become an officer in the United States Army. He eventually becomes one of the highest ranking officers in the United States Army, achieving the rank of major. And Adam Patterson and Du Bois meet for the first time in France immediately after the war, when Du Bois travels to France uh, to begin co conducting research for what he envisioned would be his book on the Black experience in the war. He meets Adam Patterson, and Patterson is also interested in helping Du Bois with this book. And they form a very close relationship, but a relationship that eventually becomes increasingly complicated 
over the post-war years and, as I talk about in the book, becomes increasingly bitter as well. Now, you talk about another famous person, Charles Young, Colonel Charles Young. Can you tell us about his connection with Dr. Du Bois? Colonel Charles Young was arguably W.B. Du Bois's closest black friend. Um, as I write about in the book, they had a very close personal relationship going back to the time that they spent together at Wilberforce. Colonel Charles Young was the most decorated and highest ranking black officer in the United States Army. He was considered black America's war hero. Um, I guess the best analogy would be with Colin Powell. He was essentially black America's Colin Powell before there was a Colin Powell. Uh, and Charles Young embodied for Du Bois the potential of African-Americans to be fully 100% American citizens. As Du Bois writes about in his classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, African-Americans face a sense of double consciousness in terms of their identity. This sense of being black on the one hand and being American on the other. And the tension uh, the two warring ideals that came along with being Black and being American. In the personhood of Colonel Charles Young, his close friend, Du Bois believed that it was indeed possible for African Americans to be both Black and be American at the same time. Now, you brought to our attention that this time period that you're talking about, there were lots of, of riots 1917 the East St. Louis uh, riot, uh, Houston, Texas. All of these events, Du Bois was a part of it. So he was also a scholar and an activist. Can you tell us about that? When the United States enters the war, Du Bois makes the very difficult decision to support the United States and the Allied war effort. He believes that the war is going to be an opportunity for African-Americans to demonstrate their citizenship and, as a result, achieve greater citizenship and democratic rights. But his faith in his uh, commitment uh, to supporting the war is very quickly tested uh, during uh, the early years, uh, during the first year that the United States enters the conflict in 1917. Uh, in July of 1917, there's a horrific race riot, uh, racial massacre in East St. Louis. Uh, shortly after that, uh, black soldiers in Houston, Texas, engage in a bloody mutiny. Uh, so while Du Bois is still committed to supporting the war, to supporting her country, his country, he also has to contend with the ongoing realities of violent white supremacy. Now... You talk about the black soldier's experience in France and what Dr. Du Bois found. Give us some stories about that. After the end of the war, uh, Du Bois is in a very precarious place. He's written a very controversial article for the crisis entitled Close Ranks, where he encourages African Americans to set aside their special grievances and close ranks with their fellow white Americans and the allies. And he's heavily criticized for this. His harshest critics accuse him of abandoning the cause of the race, of essentially being a traitor. And after the war, he's wounded by this criticism. 
and he uses the writing of the war and investigating the experiences of black soldiers in the war as an opportunity to demonstrate his continued leadership and to essentially rehabilitate his image. He goes to France immediately after the armistice and he begins to talk with black soldiers and officers in France about their experiences. And he hears directly from their mouths the horrific racial discrimination that they received in the United States Army, which was completely segregated, which believed that the majority of black soldiers should be relegated to laborers uh, who believed that black officers had no place in the army, uh, who saw them as uppity, uh, stepping outside of the racial hierarchy of the United States, um, of being obsessed with chasing after uh, white French women. So he hears all these horrible stories uh, about American racism being transported uh, to France. And he internalizes all this and he uses this as motivation to ultimately write the history of the war. Chapter three, you talk about the 360th Infantry and you talk about the confusion, the mistrust and what was going on and how they were, the African-American soldiers were blamed unfairly. And during that time, 42 men were killed and 284 wounded. Tell us more about that incident. So one of the most controversial regiments um, of black soldiers was the 368th Infantry Regiment. And they engaged in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in September of 1918, uh, the main uh, offensive of uh, the Allies, which would ultimately turn the tide of the war. And during this battle, uh, they were accused of cowardice, accused of being failures on the battlefield. The black officers of uh, this regiment uh, were uh, accused of uh, essentially um, disobeying orders uh, and uh, being worthless in terms of their, their leadership. Uh, the other uh, regiments of this uh, division, the all-black 92nd Division, believed that it was important for them to reclaim uh, the reputation of the regiment. And they were fighting literally on the last day of the war, November the 11th, um, and uh, proved uh, their worth all the while taking uh, heavy casualties, uh, which proved um, tactically uh, worthless, uh, but were still nevertheless very symbolic. Du Bois, when he travels to France, he talks to many of the men who were in the 368th Infantry Regiment and other men who were part of the 92nd Division more broadly. And he learns about their experiences, uh, the triumphs, uh, the incredible courage uh, that they exhibited, but also uh, the racism uh, and discrimination uh, that they experienced. Uh, and he really develops a sense for the rage, the bitterness that many black soldiers and black officers in particular had based on their experiences in the war. You also talk about um, the fact that Dr. W.D.B. E. Du Bois um, had a different relationship with uh, President Wilson. The first stage of the relationship and the latter stage did Dr. Du Bois see this as a time to connect and 
have racial advancement. Du Bois had a very interesting relationship with Woodrow Wilson. He initially supported Woodrow Wilson's presidency uh, in 1912, uh, when Woodrow Wilson initially ran for president, uh, very controversially. The majority of African Americans uh, continued to support the Republican Party. Du Bois believed that in supporting Woodrow Wilson, uh, a Democrat, uh, that it would potentially usher in uh, a new era of race relations, that even though Wilson was um, a native Southerner, that he was not rapidly racist, uh, like many uh, white politicians were at the time. Uh, but Du Bois would uh, very quickly be disappointed uh, in Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was firmly committed to white supremacy. Uh, he segregated uh, the federal bureaucracy. He screened Birth of a Nation, uh, the vilely racist 1915 blockbuster film in the White House. Um, and Du Bois uh, lost faith uh, in Woodrow Wilson, particularly as it related to race relations and African-Americans. But even considering that, when the United States enters the war and Woodrow Wilson proclaims that the United States is going to be fighting to make the world safe for democracy, Du Bois is enraptured by the democratic potential of the war. And he sees the war as an opportunity to advance democracy for black people in the United States, as well as throughout the broader African diaspora. Chapter three, you talked about Du Bois and the proposed book about blacks in the war. Tell us about the process. The genesis for Du Bois's book on the black experience in the war uh, began in October of 1918, just before the armistice ending the war. The NAACP Board of Directors essentially tasked Du Bois with writing about the black experience in the war, and Du Bois leaps at the opportunity to do so. Uh, this is the scholar in Du Bois, intrigued by the possibility of writing another book, but he also sees this as an opportunity to demonstrate his leadership and to establish himself as the definitive spokesperson for black soldiers um, during uh, and certainly after the war. So he begins to immediately work on this book. It runs into a whole host of complications, as I talk about uh, in my book, but he remains committed to it. As I said, he travels to France uh, after the armistice, spends three months uh, essentially beginning his research for the book. He also establishes very close relationships with black soldiers and officers who began to give him materials to use in the book. Letters, diaries, official military documents, photographs, an incredible archive of primary source materials that Du Bois begins to amass, which is going to serve as the foundation for what he believes is going to be the definitive history of the war. Chapter 4. What was Du Bois' trip like to France? Du Bois's trip to France uh, in late 1918 and early 19 was one of the defining moments of his life. He believed that it was in France where, as he wrote, the destinies of mankind were centered. Right? He travels aboard the official press ship accompanying President Woodrow Wilson to the peace conference. He organizes a landmark Pan-African Congress in February of 1919. But his principal mission, as he described it, was to begin research for his book to investigate the conditions facing African-American 
uh, soldiers and officers uh, in France during the war. And it's these experiences of talking directly with black soldiers, of seeing with his own eyes the devastation of the war, right? The battlefields of actually being in the trenches where the war becomes very real for him. And he internalizes that and he carries that with him back to the United States as he begins further work on his book. And really that experience in France would stay with Du Bois throughout the rest of his life. Now, you talk about the Pan-Africa Congress. How did he start that during his trip? Or tell us more about that. Du Bois was always very committed to the cause of Pan-Africanism. He actually attended and was the secretary for the first Pan-African Congress, which was held in 1900 in London, organized by Henry Sylvester Williams. So the opportunity to organize another Pan-African Congress was very intriguing for Du Bois. He believed that the war presented an opportunity to essentially address the problem of European colonialism um, as it related specifically to Africa. And he wanted to use the peace conference uh, as an opportunity to lobby the European powers, the United States um, as well, uh, to take the rights and future um, of Africa uh, and African peoples seriously. And his organization of the Pan-African Congress in February of 1919 was his first step in doing that. Uh, it was relatively small but still very important in laying a foundation for future Pan-African Congresses and ultimately for future movements for African uh, liberation and decolonization uh, that would materialize by uh, the late 1940s and into the 1950s. You mentioned that Du Bois spoke all over the country about the war, and specifically he went to Chicago. Tell us about that Chicago trip. When Du Bois returns back to the United States in March of 1919, he is incredibly motivated uh, to reestablish his leadership stature and to inform the African-American public about his findings uh, in France. So he goes on a speaking tour, uh, travels to numerous cities, Chicago being one of them. Uh, and his time in Chicago was very important especially considering that Chicago had become really the hub of the Great Migration, African-Americans migrating from the South to the North during the years of the war, and Chicago being one of the primary destinations. So his speech uh, before a huge audience uh, in Chicago uh, was incredibly important for Du Bois to demonstrate that he remained uh, one of, if not the leading spokesman of the race, uh, but to also gain the support of uh, African-Americans uh, who were committed to uh, staking out uh, freedom uh, and new opportunities in that city in particular. Red Summer, 1919. How did Du Bois look at that situation, and what was the response of President Wilson? Du Bois returns to the United States along with black soldiers to a nation in turmoil, to a nation that is responding to the democratic hopes and aspirations of black people and black soldiers in particular with violence and bloodshed. Du Bois's colleague, James Weldon Johnson, labeled the bloody months 
of the summer of 1919, the Red Summer, because of the race riots that took place in cities like Chicago, cities like Washington, D.C., the racial massacres that occurred throughout the South uh, in states like Arkansas, the violence inflicted upon returning black soldiers, uh, many of whom were assaulted, many of whom were lynched, some still wearing their uniforms. Du Bois was astonished by the scale and scope of the violence in the summer of 1919, and it further deepened his growing disillusionment with the outcomes of the war. Du Bois, keep in mind, believed that the war was going to be a transformative moment in democracy in the United States and elsewhere, that African Americans would have greater citizenship rights, that their humanity would be respected. And the Red Summer of 1919 very painfully demonstrated that that was not the case. Uh, and Du Bois had to reckon with the horror of that moment, but also what it meant for his support for the war, uh, which was becoming increasingly problematic to justify. Charles Young retired. Dr. Du Bois was a connected with him. How did he help him through this retirement? Charles Young had aspirations to be a general in the war. He viewed the war as potentially the crowning moment of his career. And he was, in fact, in line to be promoted to a general. But the embedded racism of the United States Army would not allow that to happen. Uh, he had some health concerns, and the Army very conveniently used those as a pretext to prematurely retire him from active service. And this really broke Charles Young's heart. Uh, it was incredibly disappointing. And Du Bois, uh, being his close friend, knew all too well uh, how painful it was for Charles Young to not have the opportunity to serve his country in uh, what was considered to be the greatest conflict in uh, American and quite possibly world history. Uh, du Bois advocated for him to be reinstated uh, to uh, with no success. Um, but continued to to fight for him even after uh, the war. Um, and uh, when the war came to an end, Charles Young very conveniently was reinstated into active duty by the United States Army. However, he decided to serve in Africa, in Liberia. And very tragically, he died in Africa in 1922, um, a death that Du Bois felt on a very deep personal level. Now, Dr. Du Bois had a brownie book. What was this to serve as? What was this all about? The brownie book was one of Du Bois's many, many ideas. He was always very intellectually active and adventurous and creative. The brownie's book was a children's magazine that he established in 1920, uh, which was designed to uh, educate children uh, about uh, different uh, events uh, taking place uh, in the United States uh, and uh, the black world um, as it related to uh, black people, but to also inspire them uh, and to demonstrate the beauty of black childhood at a time when black children uh, were not being uh, respected by white America, both in terms of their uh, their, their their symbolic uh, uh, cultural uh, representations, uh, but also in terms of their very lives uh, as well. Uh, so the Brownie book was very important 
uh, and uh, Du Bois, even though it only lasted for a year, uh, looked back at the Browning book as one of his uh, most important accomplishments. 1921, the Tulsa race riots. How did um, Dr. Du Bois respond to that? The Tulsa race riot was just one of many horrific race riots and massacres that took place in the post-war period. Uh, it was uh, devastating in terms of the scope and scale of the violence. Uh, the very prosperous Greenwood community of Tulsa was literally burned to the ground. Uh, du Bois, uh, like most African-Americans, was shocked, appalled uh, by the violence. But at the time, he was organizing another Pan-African Congress, uh, which would be held in Europe uh, in 1921. So he was really wrapped up in the organization and preparations for his Pan-African Congress and didn't say much publicly about the horror of the Tulsa uh, massacre. Uh, but he was certainly aware of it. Uh, and it was just another stark reminder of how the hopes uh, that he had for the war uh, were not materializing. The mistrust of other black scholars and Dr. Du Bois, what was going on there? Du Bois had very contentious relationships with a number of other black scholars. Uh, du Bois had a very outsized ego, uh, and he believed that there were a few people, uh, if anyone, who was smarter, more qualified than him, especially when it came to writing the history of the Black experience in the war. He initially tries to co-author his book uh, with Carter G. Woodson, uh, the founder of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, who also held a PhD in history from Harvard University, um, as well as with Emma J. Scott, uh, who was Booker T. Washington's former secretary at the Tuskegee Institute, who served as a special assistant to uh, the Secretary of War in the War Department uh, during the war and held tremendous influence, especially as related to uh, relationships and official records uh, concerning black soldiers uh, and their experiences. Uh, but his attempts to work with Carter G. Woodson and Emmett Scott uh, ultimately failed um, because of egos, but also because Emmett J. Scott, in particular, had intentions to write his own book on the history of the war. Uh, and this became a very heated rivalry uh, that would carry on uh, throughout the interwar period. Now, moving down, Dr. E.B. Du Bois, um, how did he feel about Marcus Garvey and his movement? Marcus Garvey was the leader, organizer of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. It would become the largest global organization for black people uh, in the aftermath of the war. Uh, du Bois initially didn't think much of Marcus Garvey, but as the UNIA grew in size, as Marcus Garvey grew in leadership stature, he began to take him much more seriously. And ultimately, he viewed Marcus Garvey as a threat uh, to his uh, own leadership standing, uh, but more broadly as a threat to the race and racial progress because he viewed Garvey as essentially a demagogue. Uh, he was very turned off by his flamboyance, uh, but also uh, viewed his financial management or mismanagement, we might say, of the UNIA 
um, as uh, a threat and ultimately an embarrassment uh, to the race. So they engaged in a very uh, heated and at times uh, very personal uh, war of words uh, throughout uh, much of the early 1920s. You gave the reader a glimpse into the family life of Dr. Du Bois in terms of his daughter being engaged. Tell us about that. Du Bois, I think it's fair to say, was not the best husband and certainly not the best father. Uh, his daughter, Yolande, uh, who was born after the death of his, his firstborn son, uh, was always seeking uh, her father's attention uh, and love and support. Uh, but Du Bois, busy at the time uh, with uh, leading the race, uh, editing the crisis, writing books, organizing Pan-African Congresses, uh, did not devote the necessary time and attention and love to her that she needed. Uh, and that was reflected in her personal life um, and uh, her own personal relationships. Uh, she became engaged to County Cullen, who at the time was one of the star poets uh, in uh, in Black America and during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. Uh, they ultimately married uh, in Harlem during a very elaborate uh, wedding ceremony, uh, but they were not compatible uh, as as a pair, uh, something that Du Bois, uh, Yolande's father, didn't really seem to pay much attention to. He was more concerned about what the, their marriage, what their union would represent uh, in terms of the progress of the race and their own family lineage. Uh, and uh, Yolande and County Cullen ultimately uh, divorced. Now, um, Dr. Du Bois had so many information, so much information that was sent to him by the soldiers. How did he deal with all of that information? One of the key parts of um, Du Bois's relationship uh, that I uh, explore uh, in my book, The Wounded World, uh, was with black soldiers uh, and black veterans in particular. Uh, as I said, he formed a very close relationship with many men. They were the ones who provided him with the majority of the materials that he would use in trying to write his book, uh, which he titled The Black Man and the Wounded World. Uh, they provided him with letters, diaries, all types of, of documents. And they believed that Du Bois was going to tell their story. They believed in Du Bois in giving him their personal materials, that he was going to set the historical record straight, that he was going to refute the racist lies uh, that were being spread about them. So they invested their hopes and historical visions in Du Bois, and Du Bois felt personally responsible for telling their story of writing their history. But over the years, as Du Bois struggled to write his book, as uh, time went on, many of these men asked Du Bois for their materials back. And by and large, he refused to return their materials to them. Uh, he believed that they were better off in his hands, that he would eventually complete his book. Um, and many of those materials uh, still to this day uh, remain uh, in the archive uh, that I used uh, as one of my main sources for writing my book. Let's move now to the 70th birthday of Dr. Du Bois. What did he say that was so memorable about his life? On the occasion of 
Du Bois's 70th birthday, his friends and colleagues at Atlantic University threw an elaborate celebration for him. Uh, and he spoke on uh, the, the evolution of his life uh, and the evolution of his political program, using this as an opportunity to reflect on kind of various key stages in his life, one of those being the First World War. And in that speech uh, at the uh, Atlanta University Chapel, he remarkably admits to his confusion uh, and his uh, regret in supporting the war. And this is really reflective of how Du Bois wrestled with the failure of the war itself and the ultimate failure of his decision to support it. Du Bois was deeply wounded by the war. And that speech that he gave uh, on the occasion of his 70th birthday really reflected the depth of, of his wounds. November 23, 1944. The letter from Atlanta University. What happened? The letter from Atlanta University. When he was retired. When he was retired, of course. <laughs> uh, du Bois, he returned back to uh, Atlanta University uh, after he left the NAACP uh, in uh, the early 1930s. He went back to Atlanta University to uh, resume his career as a teacher, uh, as a scholar. Um, and uh, he uh, basically didn't get along <laughs> with uh, the president uh, of Atlanta University, uh, as well as uh, the president of, of Morehouse. Uh, and uh, he was very unceremoniously uh, retired uh, to his uh, surprise. Uh, and this left him in a very precarious position financially, but also in terms um, of his uh, ability uh, to continue his scholarly work uh, and to advocate on the behalf of, of the race. Um, he uh, eventually returns back uh, to the NAACP uh, after he's retired uh, from Atlanta University. Uh, but that was a very jarring moment uh, for Du Bois um, and uh, one that he would look back on uh, with uh, a great deal of bitterness. Now, he was 76 years old when he went back to the NAACP. And a lot of things started to happen. Uh, his most famous friend, James Weldon Johnson, what happened to him that devastated Dr. Du Bois? Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson had a very long, very close personal relationship uh, and friendship. Uh, and very tragically, James Weldon Johnson dies uh, in a car accident. And this affected Du Bois um, on a very deep personal level. Again, James Weldon Johnson being one of his uh, closest friends. And one of his biggest supporters when it came to the writing of his book. Um, and this was yet another moment in the long disillusionment that Du Bois uh, would experience um, in the aftermath of, of the war, you know, all the way through uh, the years encompassing World War II uh, as well. It was a tragic blow for Black America, uh, but also a very tragic blow for Du Bois personally. World War II and African Americans. What was Du Bois's reaction to the war? Du Bois saw World War II coming. In 1936, Du Bois traveled overseas. 
uh, and he spent several months in Germany in the summer of 1936, where he witnessed Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich up close. Um, he also travels through the Soviet Union uh, and spends time uh, in China as well as in Imperial Japan. And during this six-month journey, uh, when he's in Europe and in Asia, he sees with his own eyes the seeds of a possible Second World War on the horizon. And he returns back to the United States uh, in late 1936. And by early 1937, he is advocating anybody who would listen right, to take these warning calls seriously and using the book that he was trying to write and trying to publish as an example of what can happen when war is not taken seriously. All right, so he sees his book, The Black Man and the Wounded World, as a potential opportunity, a last gasp opportunity to warn the war, warn the world about the horrors of modern warfare. And very tragically, no one listens. He gives up hope that he is ultimately going to finish his book. And by 1940, when he does decide that he is no longer going to continue to write The Black Man in the Wounded World, the Second World War has erupted. Du Bois is very cynical uh, about the outcomes of the Second World War. Uh, he believes that there is going to be no positive outcome in it. He views it as an even greater tragedy than the First World War. And even when the United States enters the war and African-Americans are... Um, are forced uh, because of the draft and the pressures um, of the war uh, to support the war effort. He believes that African-Americans didn't have democracy before the war, and they certainly weren't going to have it afterwards as well. Peace Information Center. Um, tell us about that center and how Du Bois was connected with it. The Peace Information Center was a short-lived, very small organization made up of Du Bois and just a couple of other um, individuals. And their principal goal was to promote peace uh, and to publicize uh, different um, movements uh, and uh, and spread information uh, about uh, peace movements, uh, which were becoming uh, more uh, active uh, in the aftermath of World War II. Um, and as the atomic arms uh, race began to, to heat up. Uh, the Peace Information Center was immediately um, persecuted by the federal government. Uh, they disbanded. Uh, but even uh, despite them disbanding, the United States uh, government and the Justice Department uh, charges them uh, with a federal crime of essentially being a, a mouthpiece for the Soviet Union and charges Du Bois personally with being an agent of a foreign principle. And this is really a remarkable moment. 83 years old, Du Bois is on trial by the federal government, facing years uh, in jail. And it's really a testament to the remarkable journey that Du Bois experiences from the First World War to the 1950s, right? As I chronicle in my book, where Du Bois during this time is reckoning with the legacies of the war, his own commitments to peace. So by 1951, right, he is an, um, an avid peace activist, right, an ardent peace activist. 
He's ultimately uh, acquitted. Uh, but that moment um, of literally fighting for his life and freedom really put a tragic exclamation point on Du Bois's reckoning with the history of the war um, and the history of democracy in the United States. Now, in your book, you talk about the fact that he became a candidate for the Senate with the American Labor Party. Um, and then you talk about the death of his wife of 55 years. Tell us about those events. Uh, du Bois, he had a, a short-lived career as a political candidate. <laughs> he was uh, put up for uh, Congress uh, uh, and uh, didn't win, obviously, uh, but he still enjoyed the experience. Uh, he received more support uh, than he uh, initially expected. Uh, that was just one uh, event uh, that shaped Du Bois's later years. Uh, another event being the, the tragic death of his first wife, Nina Du Bois. Um, they had a very long, uh, not a very loving uh, marriage, uh, but certainly uh, the death of his first wife uh, was uh, very sad uh, for Du Bois, um, but he would continue to, to soldier on. You talk about he married again to Shirley Graham, and I'm thinking he was about 83. Um, tell us about that story. Uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois was a really remarkable scholar, intellectual artist uh, in her own right. Uh, du Bois and Shirley Graham uh, had a uh, long relationship uh, before uh, they formally married. Uh, she uh, was one of his uh, biggest uh, supporters. Uh, and following the death of uh, Du Bois's first wife, she really stepped in to fill the emotional void, uh, but also support him in his later years, uh, but to also shape his uh, political and intellectual trajectory as Du Bois became more closely aligned with the radical left. Uh, Shirley Graham uh, played a very important role uh, in uh, du Bois's radicalism uh, in, in the final years of his life. 90th birthday. Du Bois's 90th birthday. Uh, he lived a very long time. <laughs> and uh, even in, in old age, even when he was 90 years old, uh, he was still fighting for black freedom and equality. Uh, this was a time when Du Bois uh, was still continuing to be persecuted by the federal government. Uh, he was essentially persona non grata uh, during the height of uh, the McCarthy era, uh, but he continued uh, to believe uh, in uh, the, the values of freedom of speech. Um, he was committed to, to democracy, even as uh, the United States itself in persecuting him uh, revealed its uh, lack of commitment to, to democracy. And his death, August 27, 1963. Du Bois dies in Ghana, August 27th, 1963. He makes the decision to leave the United States uh, in 1961 for Ghana. Um, his passport is eventually uh, restored after it had been taken away by the federal government. Uh, he travels uh, abroad uh, to the Soviet Union, uh, to China, to other places in Europe. Uh, but when he receives an invitation from uh, Kwame Nkrumah uh, to come to Ghana to finish work on one of his long 
outstanding projects, Encyclopedia Africana, he accepts the invitation. Uh, and he realizes that this is, given his age, most likely going to be a final move. Uh, he spends his final years uh, in Ghana uh, and dies uh, peacefully in his sleep. Uh, the uh, evening of August the 27th, 1963, literally the day before the March on Washington for, for jobs in freedom in Washington, D.C. What is the message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? My book, The Wounded World, is really a story about Du Bois, um, arguably the greatest black intellectual in American history, and his reckoning with the personal and historical legacies of the First World War. I really tell a remarkable story in this book about Du Bois's unfinished and unpublished book, which no scholars um, before me have, have written about. It's a remarkable glimpse into Du Bois's life, his work, the significance of World War I uh, in his political and intellectual evolution. But ultimately, the reader will take away from my book the broader meanings of democracy for Black people in the 20th century and how Du Bois was a central figure in those struggles. Will, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience the next project you'll be working on? The next project is still to be determined. Um, I would certainly like to continue working with Du Bois and maybe trying to find a way to get parts of, if not all of his unfinished uh, manuscript uh, published in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm also interested in thinking about some of our current debates and controversies were uh, regarding uh, African American studies, uh, and I'm sure uh, even in in that project, Du Bois will will somehow figure in it. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with Dr. Chad L. Williams, the author of The Wounded World: W. E. B. Du Bois and the First World War. Thanks again. Thank you.